You're listening to the Revolution Church Podcast. To learn more, including our gathering times in Crossville, Tennessee, visit us at CrossvilleRevolution.com. This week, we're in week seven of a series where we're going verse by verse through the book of Ephesians. If you're new to Rev Church, what we like to do about 90 to 95% of the time is preach verse by verse through books of the Bible or through large passages of Scripture. We feel like that is the best way to study Scripture because you get the full breadth of what's being said and you see it in its context. You're smack dab in the middle of our series on the book of Ephesians. Now, if we did a little bit of review on the book of Ephesians, then we understand that the first three chapters, which Pastor Brandon closed out last week, were heavy, heavy, heavy theology. And really, the first three chapters of Ephesians talks about all that Jesus has done for us. But if you specifically look at the first three chapters, Paul didn't tell us or instruct us to do anything. He really just talked about what one preacher said is, our wealth in Christ. In fact, that term in Christ in the first three chapters of Ephesians is used some 27 times. Well, today we're starting the applicational part of Ephesians. Chapters four through six are heavy application. And the idea and really the way the book of Ephesians goes is because of what Jesus has done for us, now we're going to learn in the next three chapters how we live for the glory of God. As I said, one preacher says that chapters 1 through 3 talks about our wealth, and you're going to see today, chapters 4 through 6, talks about our walk. How do we apply the things that we've learned, in other words, in the first three chapters? Now, let me do a little bit of a review of chapters 2 and 3 that we just got done going over. If you remember, in chapters 2 and 3, Uh, Really, Paul went heavy on the idea that the church was made up of two different sects of people. The Jews and the Gentiles made up the early church, and to this day, it's no different. If you're not a pure Jewish person or a Hebrew, then you would be considered a Gentile. And we had this idea as we went through those two chapters that the church is very diverse with all kinds of different people. All kinds of people from different backgrounds, different ages, different races, different ethnicities. Well, again, today we're going to look at how do we, everybody say we, one, two, three, we, one more time, one, two, three, we achieve unity with so many differences. With so many differences, how does the church get along? The title of my sermon today is We, not me. Everybody say that title with me. One, two, three. We, not me. We're going to see that that really summarizes this passage as we look at verses 1 through 16. Let's start verse 1. Y'all still with me? Say, I am. Starts out like this. Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy. Some translations say Walk worthy, but live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Verse 2, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Stop right here. In the first three verses, we see the end goal of this entire passage. It's pointed out in verse 3. The end goal of the church that Paul's instructing us in 
is unity through peace, or as he puts more specifically, unity through the bond of peace. And Paul is setting us up here because he's making sure we understand that we're not all going to be carbon copies, that in fact, churches are very, very different from each other. The church that I got saved in in Knoxville, Tennessee, Park West Church of God, highly charismatic, highly Pentecostal church that I got saved in. The first church that I worked at was Pine Eden Baptist Church right down the road. Uh, It was a typical Southern Baptist church, and one of my mentors still to this day is Pastor Tony Wilson, who's the pastor of White Oak Baptist Church. Those churches are completely different, totally different. We started Rev Church ten and a half years ago, and Rev Church is like nothing I've ever experienced when I attend or when I lead, and hopefully you feel the same way because one of our values is we want to be different on the micro level of things. So churches are different. Not only are churches different, Christians are different. Christians are different. How many of y'all know Christians are kind of weird? Raise your hand. Kind of weird. Hey, listen. If you don't have your hand raised, you're the weird one. Okay, y'all? Even if you are a Christian, you think Christians are weird because we have differences on all kinds of different things. We agree on major things, which we're going to see here in just a minute, the things that unify us. But we have differences on secondary issues. Some people homeschool their kids. Some people send their kids to public schools. There's all kinds of differences in secondary beliefs. And so what we're going to find is really answering this question, how do we individually conduct ourselves to make sure that corporately the church is united and peaceful. Because with these differences, it is inevitable that there is going to be friction that takes place. There could be anger that arises up in us because of these differences. There could be frustration. And rest assured, there absolutely, in every single one of us, is going to be selfishness that bubbles to the surface in corporate structures of churches. Now, also, this is true in your relationships as well. It's very true in your relationships as well. So as we, as we go through what we're talking about today and apply this, understand it doesn't just apply to the church. This is going to apply to your marriage. This is going to apply to your relationship with your coworkers. If you want to get along with your boss, if you want to get along with your kids or your parents, this applies to every relationship you have. So how does me help we? How do we avoid church wars? How do we squash church fights? How do we deal with, in a proactive way, conflicts and arguments that corporately take place in the church? Well, it's by individually assessing our behavior. One by one, every single one of us has to really go through this litmus test that Paul's going to give us to ask the question, am I helping build the church or am I causing dissension in the church. Now, Paul uses a phrase in these first three verses. He says, I urge you to live a life worthy. Live a life worthy in the translation we use, but I like other translations that use a better word for live. It says, walk worthy. Everybody say walk. One, two, three. Walk. Okay? This this point really is Paul telling us, walk this way. This is the way that we are supposed to walk. Reminds me of that old Aerosmith song. Does anybody know who Aerosmith is? 
That's my old people. Raise your hand if you remember Aerosmith. Walk this way. Walk this way. Y'all know it. Sing it with me. Talk this way. Walk this way. Talk this way. Look at your neighbor and say, just give me a kiss. Just kidding. I just took some single guy up in here. Yeah. You sat next to her. You thought, boy, she's pretty. You know what I mean? Hooked you up. No, that's kind of creepy. Walk this way. Heard a story about a man that was 75 years old, very seasoned in life. The doctor couldn't believe how good a shape he was in. The doctor said, how in the world are you in such good shape at 75 years old? The man said, well, doc, my wife and I, when we got married 50 years ago, we had an agreement. We had an agreement that if she ever made me mad, then I would signal her and we would just be quiet. But if I ever made her mad, she would signal me and I would leave the house and go on a walk. I can't tell you how much I've walked over 50 years. And all the husbands said, Amen. Walking is a common theme in the New Testament. In Colossians chapter 2, the Bible tells us to walk in Him. In Galatians chapter 5, it's used in two different ways. One place it says walk in the Spirit. Another place it says walk in love. First John, we're supposed to walk in the light. Well, here it tells us that we're supposed to walk worthy. Worthy. This word worthy is the Greek word axios, which the technical definition means this, and I'll explain it in a better way that's more understandable, being fitting or proper in correspondence with what should be expected. In other words, Paul is saying, don't just walk because a lot of people walk a lot of different ways. Make sure you're walking in the right direction. The word worthy here is a call to consistency for believers in their walk. In other words, you're trying to be more like Jesus and you look more like him the majority of the time than you do the other way. It's consistency. It's a call away from hypocrisy. J.C. Ryle says this in his commentary on this verse. He says, a Christian is a walking sermon. They preach far more than a minister does for they preach all week long. Amen, Rev Church. In this passage, in these first few verses, Paul says, walk worthy, walk in the right direction. But then he gives us some attributes of how we're supposed to walk in this direction. He doesn't just say, do it. He says, let me give you five things that will help you and you'll know if you're walking in the right direction. We'll have these for the screen uh, because you guys need to take a picture of these and you need to revisit these probably almost daily and so do I. Number one, he says, have humility. Let me explain what humility is. It's restraining our sense of entitlement to be the focus of other people's care and attention. Or as C.S. Lewis puts it, the one who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, he says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Then he says, secondly, have gentleness. Now, humility is an attitude of the mind, but gentleness is the outward manifestation of someone's humility. It means dealing with people with kindness instead of roughness. It means being compassionate instead of demanding. It means being encouraging instead of bullying. 
Thirdly, he says, have patience. Be long-suffering of the faults of others and slow to rebuke people. And the reason is, is because we know spiritual growth takes time. And every single one of us is a work in progress. Amen, Rev Church. All of us are. means exercising humility and gentleness in the company of disappointing, frustrating, and downright offensive behavior. Fourthly, he says, have tolerance. If you want to walk worthy, have tolerance. Now, patience helps us with our circumstances, but tolerance helps us with difficult people. It means to reach out with forgiveness, understanding, sympathy. It means to treat others with grace. Now, let's make sure and make sure that this is clear. Tolerance does not mean that we are tolerant of sin. It does not mean we are tolerant of sinful behavior. It means we're tolerant of the shortcomings of others. It means that when someone disagrees with us on a secondary issue, we don't take their head off for it because it's really not that important to begin with. And then finally, he says, bear with one another in love. In other words, accept the failures and flaws of others because we love them. The form of love that's used in this verse is the Greek word agape love. Agape love is an unconditional love that expects nothing in return. And really, the previous four attributes explains exactly what agape love is in action. Now, we've already established that Paul wrote several prison epistles. The book of Ephesians was written while Paul was in prison. But he wrote another epistle called the book of Philippians while he was in the same prison. And Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, really summarizes every one of these attributes and what it means. It parrots exactly what Paul is saying here when it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. Keep in mind that Jesus was every one of these things. He was gentle. He was humble at heart. He came to serve others, not to be served. This leads us to the question when we're self-analyzing ourselves so that we can have unity through peace. Individually, are you a divider or are you a unifier? Do you gossip? Do you spread rumors? Do you sow discord in the church? Do you focus on minor things that divide instead of major things that unite? And you'll see why that's important here in just a second as we continue through this passage. Do you lose patience? You ever yelled at somebody in the parking lot of the church? Told them they were number one for taking your parking place? I've seen it before. Are you generous and love people only when you think you're going to get something in return? Are you passive aggressive? You hold on to grudges? You hold on to bitterness? Are you afraid to have conflict in a biblical manner? Here's the point. If you do any of these things, it did not come from God and you did not learn it from the Holy Spirit. And so you need to repent. You need to change. If you lean towards this way, a negative attitude and causing discord and things like that, you probably need a, 
accountability partner in the church that will call you out and hold you accountable in these behaviors. Because some of these behaviors, let's be honest, y'all, I mean, most of the churches that I've served in, these were the things that were present. And so you're talking about behaviors that have been learned over 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. So you're not going to walk away today and just say, I'm never going to do that again. Yeah, you will. It's your habits. It's what you've done for years and years and years. And to find freedom, you're going to have to have people help you. Could you imagine if there was a group of musicians that were chosen and assembled to play Mozart on some grand platform? And then imagine that they start to argue about insignificant things. The conductor would most likely look at them and say, stop squabbling. You're incredibly privileged to have been chosen and assembled to do this. Paul here is reminding the church 2,000 years ago, and in, in essence, he's reminding us as well, don't argue. You're incredibly privileged to have been chosen and gathered into your local church to be a part of his beautiful plan of bringing the gospel to people. So don't fight about insignificant things. Be humble, be gentle, be patient, and play nice. Everybody look at your neighbor and say, play nice. Now find your number two, somebody you probably don't know on the other side of you, and say, play nice, bro, play nice. The year was 2015, and something happened on the interwebs that divided people, caused all kinds of conflict. There was a white and gold dress in a picture. You guys remember this picture? Go ahead and put it up. And crazy people said that this dress was, I don't even remember, what was it? Black, blue and black or something. Okay, well, let's get something straight in here, and you may need to move seats. Okay, how many people in here say that that's white and gold? Raise your hand. All right, those are the safe people. How many people in here say that that dress is, what is it, black and purple or blue and something like that? Another color, raise your hand. Yeah, Lord, we pray for these folks right now. Something's wrong, God. I don't know. If you remember that, say Amen. Remember how you knew somebody that saw it in a different color than you did, and you couldn't believe they saw it in a different color. This is what happens in the church. Something so insignificant, the church divides over, fights over, argues over for days, for weeks. And it's because we fail to see something through someone else's eyes that might be different than we see it, especially these secondary issues and these insignificant things that the church really fights over? Why is this important? It's important because in the next two verses, Paul says, here's the seven things that unite us. In other words, here's orthodoxy is what we call it. Orthodox beliefs are really laid out in the next two verses. He says, don't divide over secondary issues. Understand Here's the things, as long as you agree on these seven things that he's getting ready to say, then you're all Christians and you can have different opinions on other things, if that makes sense. Look, look at verse four. Y'all with me? Say, I am. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Y'all, okay? In all, y'all. Makes me think God likes Southerners extra special. Amen, y'all? Everybody say y'all. I just It's supposed to say y'all there. There's no doubt. That's a mistranslation. It's got to be. Seven undeniable things that unite believers. These are the things that we major on. In other words, we're going to give you another list here. Let's go through them. Number one, he says, we have one body. Means Jews and Gentiles make up the body. It's all different kinds of people. Slave and free, male and female, rich and poor, old and young. Number two, we have one spirit. He's referring to the third part of the Trinity, and every part of the Trinity is mentioned here. So the Trinity is a major for us. The third part of the Trinity. And the idea is the same Spirit dwells in every believer. In other words, there aren't different Holy Spirits for different people in different groups. If you're saved by the blood of Jesus, you have the exact same Holy Spirit that Billy Graham had when he was alive. You've got the exact same Holy Spirit that Tim Tebow has. You've got the exact same Holy Spirit that the Gaithers have. I'm trying to be generational here. Y'all know what I'm saying? My kids were like, who's the Gaithers? You know, but, but y'all know what I mean? You've got the exact same Holy Spirit that Pastor Josh has. I'm not special and I've got a different spirit. No, we have one spirit. Number three, one hope when called. That's the hope of heaven that Paul has laid out over and over in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, where there's no sin, there's no death, there's no pain. We're all going to be there one day, praising Jesus together. We have one Lord. That's the second part of the Trinity. Jesus, what this is all about. Our whole call is to make Jesus famous, spread the gospel to all the world. So we have one Lord, that is Jesus. We have one faith. He's referring here to, by grace, you have been saved through faith. We were all saved by the same faith. We have one baptism. And the idea here is, this is what we can agree on with baptism. Through baptism, we publicly proclaim our faith in Christ. In other words, baptism is an outward sign of an inward change that takes place. Can we disagree on whether or not we should sprinkle or pour or immerse and all those different things that we've laid out in baptism? Sure, we can disagree on those things. Can you come to Revolution Church, we immerse people, and you believe that it's okay if people are sprinkled in baptism? Yes! We don't need to have a UFC fight out in the parking lot over how we do baptism. We just agree that baptism is, as one theologian puts it, the right of initiation into the Christian faith. Seventh, he says, we have one God and Father. That's the first part of the Trinity. God the Father. These are the things that we major on. These are the things that unite us. And all the other things we're humble about. We're patient about. We're gentle about. We love each other. We bear with one another in love. Somebody believes something different about a secondary issue and you really disagree with them on it, it's all right to disagree on those things. It's not worth destroying the unity and the peace over those things. Does that make sense to everybody? Say amen. I hope this makes sense. Really, really good stuff. Now we continue in verse 7 and go to verse 16. And I had to put these with this because to do this text justice, you have to include this as part of the unity passage really here. And so, so Paul's not done. He's got more. It makes me think of those infomercials. But wait, there's more. You know what I mean? There's more here. 
Because Paul starts to talk about spiritual gifts and different things like this. Listen to what it says in verse 7. But to each, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Long story short, when he talks about captives, think Jesus came to set the captives free. When it talks about giving gifts to his people, think spiritual gifts. Verse 9, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Now listen, that's very, some very Game of Thrones-ish like uh, type language, y'all know what I'm saying? And those few verses can be a little bit confusing. So when it talks about ascending and descending, it's very interesting that Paul is putting this right in the middle of a, church, of a, a passage about unity. Because the ascending and descending views is something that churches have literally split over in the past. Because there's such different viewpoints on what does it mean that Jesus ascended and descended? And what does all this mean? What I believe this means is, and I base this off of the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, is it's referring to the incarnation of Christ into a human. In other words, Christ came down and descended and became a human for us. The Son of God descended from heaven to take on a human nature. Afterwards, when he was crucified, he ascended to heaven after he resurrected. In Acts chapter 1 and 2, we see that Jesus, uh, after he resurrected, he ascended to heaven. There's a couple of different viewpoints. I don't want to bore you, but if you're interested, you can go study and figure out what you believe about this. The second viewpoint that's pretty prominent is Christ ascended to heaven, but then the Holy Spirit descended to earth. The most common viewpoint on this scripture uh, really goes in line with 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 20, that where most theologians and a lot of people believe that this is referring to the time in between where Jesus was crucified and he rose again. That three-day period, many people believe that Jesus actually went to Sheol, which is the Old Testament uh, form of hell, and he set captives free. Listen to what Chuck Swindoll says about this viewpoint. Many believe that after his death on the cross, Christ descended into the place of departed spirits, proclaiming victory over wicked spirits in bondage and leading Old Testament saints on a victorious ascent to paradise. This is so popular that in the most popular creed we have as Christians, uh, which is the Apostles' Creed, it actually says Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into Hades, okay? Now, if you're a nerd, that'll really interest you. The rest of you guys, we've got to wake you up. Slap your neighbor right now. No, don't slap your neighbor, okay? Don't slap your neighbor. Interesting that this is in the middle of a passage about unity. I tell you that because I have to do justice and explain that. But I believe, no matter what we disagree on what verse 9 means, when it talks about ascending or descending, we can all agree on verse 10, where it says Jesus ascended to the Father. Now we continue in verse 11. Y'all still with me? Say, I am. This is where he really starts to talk about the body of Christ and all that stuff. This is going to be so good, so good. I'm fired up. Y'all fired up? Just lie to me, okay, y'all? Y'all fired up? About this, the rest of this passage? Good, good, okay. You sound like it now. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up 
until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the ways and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Now, this passage being included in this is huge, and here's why. Paul is talking about unity at the first of this passage. But now, Paul makes sure that he is very clear that unity is not uniformity. Harmony is not monotony. In other words, Christians are not all just carbon copies of each other. The great mystery of the church, one of the greatest things about the church, is that there's all different types of people. We're not a bunch of robots, and somehow we all get along, and we all have one mission to spread the gospel of Christ. Does that make sense to everybody? In the world, this doesn't happen. Y'all notice this in politics. You notice this on sports teams. This doesn't happen. Different kinds of people usually fight about all kinds of different things. But in the church, unity is not uniformity. How incredible that Paul makes this point. He talks about the body of Christ here. And the different parts that perform different functions in the body. These functions come out, as Paul puts it here, as spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts, let's do a crash course in spiritual gifts. It's defined as a God-given ability or skill that enables a believer to perform a specific function in the body of Christ with effectiveness and ease. Some points about spiritual gifts. I've got a chart for you again. Take a picture of this because there's a lot of confusion about this. And I may go hard in the paint on some of these, okay? Number one, every believer has at least one spiritual gift. Some people have more than one. If you've been saved by the blood of Jesus, God has given you a spiritual gift. And it's important to differentiate between gifts and talents. Some people say, man, I'm just so gifted at singing. Singing's not a spiritual gift. Okay, y'all? So when somebody is trying to work me with that, I'm like, automatically, I know. You don't even know what the Bible says about gifts and talents. Gifts are specifically given by the Holy Spirit. And if you're saved, you have been given a spiritual gift. Okay, everybody with me? Say, I am. Number two, spiritual gifts help you fulfill your calling. We've talked at length in the first three chapters about how all of us have a calling, a ministry. In other words, you're not all called to be pastors. But the word ministry is a nursing term. And all of us have a ministry that we're supposed to be involved in. The same term that's used here. You're not all called to preach and be pastors, but all of us are called to be a part of ministries. And the spiritual gifts help you fulfill your ministry or your calling. Number three, all gifts come from God and not man. Why am I making this point? Because there's no point in being envious of someone that has a spiritual gift you don't have or being proud of a spiritual gift that God has given you and you couldn't do it. You would totally stink at it if he didn't give you the spiritual gift. No point in being envious or proud. Absolutely no point, which brings us to our number five. Spiritual gifts are varied and clearly in Scripture 
everyone is equally important. Let me put it to you like this. Pastor Josh preaching is not more important than Colby, who's running the camera. Everybody give it up for Colby. He's crushing it. How old are you, Colby? 15? 15 years old. He gets here at like 6 in the morning on Sunday so he can set this stuff up and run cameras. It's incredible what God's doing in this young man's life. But Colby's just as important as me. In fact, there is a passage in Corinthians that talks about how the gifts that are used behind the scenes might be more important than the gifts that are used on the platform. And we get it all backwards, don't we? I don't want to run the camera, but I'll sing the solo. I don't want to clean the bathrooms. I'm called to preach. No, you're not. You're called to do what God has told you to do. Called to preach? That's not humility. Is that gentleness? Is that patience? Is that all those things we talked about? No. Four places in the New Testament that gifts are listed. This is my last list, okay, y'all? But I got to do justice by giving you this list. Again, take a picture. In Romans chapter 12, it lists off prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, giving, leading, and mercy. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it talks about the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, discernment, tongues, interpretation of tongues. Ephesians chapter 4, which is where we're at now, talks about apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And I'm, I'm doing this specifically so you'll see something different in the passage we're on today. And in 1 Peter 4, it talks about speaking and serving. By the way, this is why we have the growth track here at the church. If you're new to Revolution Church, or even if you've been coming for a long time, and you have no clue what your spiritual gift is, we have something called the growth track. You need to sign up for it. It's the first three Sundays of the month. You don't have to take them consecutively. If you miss the second one this month, you can make it up three months from now. But we will help you discover your spiritual gifts so that you can start to fulfill that call in ministry. We'll help you discover your purpose so that you can make a difference. So get into the growth track, R-E-S-P-S-P-S-P, okay? ASAP, that's an office reference. Nobody ever gets it except for me and Pastor Brandon, but um, I just made it awkward. But get into the growth track, and we will help you discover your spiritual gifts so that you can make a difference. What does all this have to do with what Paul's talking about here when he talks about being an infant versus a grown adult? He says, when you're an infant, the wind and the waves come in, and they toss you around. They throw you all over the place. But when you've reached maturity... The wind's going to come, but it's not necessarily going to knock you down. The waves are going to come, but it's not necessarily going to knock you down. Notice that in Ephesians 4, the gifts that are listed are the Bible teaching gifts. It's the church leadership gifts. When it comes to a church being unified, having peace, having maturity, it all happens from the top down in other words. Paul here is pointing out the Bible teachers of the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the people that are teaching the word of God to the church, or as he puts it, they're equipping his people for the works of service. Another way to put that is not the word service. They're equipping his people for the works of ministry. Another way to put that is, In other places, this word is used this way. They're equipping his people for works of worship. When you have bad Bible teachers, you will have a bad church. Does that make sense to everybody? Say amen. When you have immature Bible teachers, 
you will have an immature church. When you have people that have no clue what they're talking about when they're teaching the scriptures to the church, to a small group, to whatever, and they're not mature enough to be able to divide the scriptures and they haven't been given one of these spiritual gifts, you inevitably will have a church that's full of a bunch of people that are completely immature, completely immature. Um, Our middle school coordinator uh, director, I can't remember the actual title, you saw him on the announcements before we started, uh, did a powerlifting competition two weeks ago. Is Alex in here by chance or is he hiding? Okay, he's not in here, so I get to embarrass him next service. But he set a state squat record when he did a powerlifting competition. Can you believe we have somebody on staff at a church that set a squat state record? You know what I mean? That's awesome to me because I'm a gym rat, but you're probably thinking that's really lame. But uh, I think it's really cool. Imagine if Alex, who set this state record, hired a coach to teach him how to get stronger in his squats that had never squatted before, didn't know anything about working out, didn't know anything about any of that stuff. Alex would suffer, and he wouldn't be setting state records. Imagine, maybe this one will relate, imagine Josh Heupel is out at the coach at UT, And the director comes up and says, we've decided to hire this coach that has zero experience. It's his first year coaching ever. And we're going to hire him at UT and pay him a few million dollars. You'd be like, that's crazy. They got to have experience. They got to know what they're talking about. Otherwise, the Vols are going to absolutely stink. I don't know. I was going to say a joke there, but I'm not going to say anything about the Vols. Georgia lost yesterday, so that's, that's bad. But they got it beat by Alabama. I don't know how to feel. You know, it's like college football purgatory. Do you want Alabama to win? Do you want Georgia to lose? I don't know. Just pray for me so I can get out of this place. That's the only way you can get out of it. Wouldn't work. Wouldn't work. It's the same thing with your Bible teachers. You'd never hire a personal trainer that didn't work out, didn't have the experience, didn't know what they were talking about. Same thing in a church. Same thing in a church. Y'all, there is a pandemic in the church that comes out in a couple different ways. Number one, we've seen overwhelmingly, I don't know how much you keep up with Christian culture, I don't, but I tend to hear about these things. There's a pandemic of pastors that are falling all over the nation, specifically in the U.S. It happens all over the world. I'm talking guys that have been pastors for 30, 40, 50 years. They seem to have an incredible legacy, and then all of a sudden, 30 women come out and accuse them. All of a sudden, we found out they were having an affair. All of a sudden, when you don't hire qualified Bible teachers or put them in place, the result is it not only hurts them, it can destroy the church. This is what Paul is pointing out. When you take someone, this is another thing we do in the church. Somebody gets saved. They can't believe they've been saved by the blood of Jesus. They're newly saved. They've been saved less than a year. And then all of a sudden, out of their excitement, and I'm not saying they're not called, but they start to feel like maybe they're called to preach as we put it in the South, right? Well, churches wanting to support that young man will say, we're going to give him every opportunity in the world. Really? Never been in church? Been saved less than a year? And you're going to let him take a group of people and start to equip them? for acts of worship and ministry, when what really needs to happen is they need to be discipled for several years before they're even close to being ready to do that. Does that make sense to everybody? Say amen. 
The result is going to be confusion. The result is going to be immature believers that are tossed all over the place. What do I believe about this? I don't know. How does the Bible apply to how I vote? I don't know. What do I believe about being woke? I don't know. You see how this comes out? And it's all from the top down. Fish rots from the head down, y'all. We have a saying on our staff, it's the 10% 10 the 10 times rule. Whatever I do right, I'm lucky if y'all do 10% of it. That's the burden of leadership. If I pray for an hour a day, man, praise God if everybody in this room prays six minutes a day. But boy, whatever I do wrong, y'all are going to do 10 times what I do wrong. If I get on social media and make an off-color joke, somebody in this church is going to be like, well, Pastor Josh does it. They're going to go all out, posting all kinds of crazy stuff. Is everybody with me? Say amen. Because he did it, so now I can do it, and I'm going to do 10 times worse. It's important. The second thing that we see from this is most churches are upside down. and This is what leads to disunity. What did it say the call of the Bible teachers are? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, worship, and service. Let's be honest. We're in the South. I know some of y'all are from California and Illinois. Okay, y'all, we're glad you're here. But I got a feeling it functions the same way there, too. Most churches are upside down. What I mean is what most people expect when they come to a church is the pastor and the staff and the deacons and the elders, they do the ministry. You better visit me in the hospital when I'm sick. You better call and check on me when I got something going on. You better. Now listen, am I exempt from that? Are the pastors and the staff and the elders and the deacons? No, we're supposed to live that out too. But oh, by the way, our main calling is to equip you guys to do that. You guys to do that. We equip you. This is why we go through books of the Bible, by the way. Because we're not just looking to draw a crowd here at Revolution Church. Praise God, this service has a lot of people in it. But we literally think it's much more effective to have less people, but we're making disciples rather than a big crowd of lukewarm Christians that don't do jack squat for the kingdom all week long. Is everybody with me? Say amen. So we equip you. I'm not supposed to do every bit of the ministry. Pastor Brandon's not supposed to do. Jeff, Rev Men, uh, Annette, not supposed to do. We're equipping you guys so that we can do the ministry. Again, it's not me. It's three people got it. Let's do it again, okay? The answer is we. The answer is we. It's not me. It's we. We are the church collectively, and this is what leads to unity and to peace. Let me pray for you guys, Lord. We love you. Thank you so much for today. Thank you for every single person that's here, God. Thank you for your word. Some of these things get so confusing, uh, but man, you just clarify it. You clarify it. I pray for Revolution Church specifically. God, for unity, for peace. Uh, God, I thank you for the people that you've sent from all different backgrounds. God, and we are united in one thing. We want people to know Jesus. I pray that we don't major on the minors. I pray that we major on the main thing. We love you, Lord. You are awesome. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. We love you guys. You're dismissed. We'll see you next week. 
If you're encouraged by today's message, be sure and rate us and subscribe on iTunes.